This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Lymphedema. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, filling in for our moderator, Dr. Jim Allen. Today on MedNet, we're going to be talking about lymphedema, or tissue swelling due to disruption of the lymphatic system. 100 years ago, lymphedema was not very common in the United States. When Dr. William Milroy established his medical practice in Omaha, Nebraska in 1884, one of his first patients was a 31-year-old clergyman and missionary who had leg swelling since childhood. Dr. Milroy took an extensive family history of 97 of his patients' ancestors and relatives over six generations. Of these, 22 individuals also had congenital lymphedema in the legs. He published his findings in the New York Medical Journal. Sir William Osler read his article and named the syndrome Milroy's disease in his textbook of medicine. Although congenital lymphedema remains rare, other causes of lymphedema are increasingly common. Until recently, there was little to be done for patients with lymphedema other than compression garments, but as we're going to see today, there are revolutionary new surgical techniques that are offering life-changing improvements in those conditions. Here in the studio to tell us about new treatments for lymphedema is Professor of Plastic Surgery, Dr. Roman Skaraki. Dr. Skaraki is the Division Chief of Oncologic Plastic Surgery at the Ohio State University and is also the Medical Director of the OSU Stephanie Spielman Comprehensive Breast Center. Roman, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Roman, what are the most common causes of lymphedema that you see in your own clinical practice? So in the United States, in the Western world, really, it's um, lymphedema associated with cancer, uh, the treatment of cancer specifically. So the removal of lymph nodes, and the more lymph nodes that are removed, the more likely 
um, lymphedema may occur. And then also in conjunction usually with the other adjuvant therapies such as chemo and radiation therapy, they all play a role in increasing the risk for lymphedema. But those are the most common patients that I would see. What are the most common symptoms and medical consequences of lymphedema? Um, the, the actually earliest signs that patients may encounter or may, may notice is heaviness and, uh, and tightness in the extremity. That may come well before we can actually measure a volume difference in that extremity or in the affected part. Um, other things that can occur is that it can be painful, that, that quick swelling uh, will certainly off, set off some of the, 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 the receptors um, and will cause pain. Um, range of motion difficulties, depending on which part of the body can be part of that. And then, unfortunately, also recurrent infections may be experienced by some of the patients with lymphedema. Well, thanks, Roman. For all of you viewing, you can view all 120 of our current MedNet webcasts by going to ccme.osu.edu on your web browser. And if you prefer to get your continuing medical education by podcast, just go to your podcast app and search OSU MedNet 21. Also, if you have questions about lymphedema, you can email us by using the Ask a Question icon at the bottom of your MedNet webpage. And now let's get started with today's webcast. Roman? Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much for being here um, and allowing me to introduce lymphedema to you and talk a little bit about uh, a topic dear to my heart. Um, I have no disclosures. Uh, lymphedema, as we talked about just now, by the patient tends to be experienced as something that's physically, but then also associated with that psychologically debilitating in the sense that the patient will not only have usually heaviness and, uh, and tightness early on, but uh, will notice swelling in the later stages, but then also it tends to be something that's uncomfortable. There's pain associated with it. Um, there's an obvious deformity in, in, the, in the more uh, swollen extremity or the more swollen part. And then patients may also have recurrent infections, as we mentioned. Um, with that comes the kind of continuous need for therapy, and we'll go through some of those therapies for the patient. That's a constant reminder, uh, not only of the limb that's swollen, but then also their battle with the, 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 with the cancer in, in, in most cases. Uh, so this tends to be a lifelong chronic disability uh, that can also have a financial toll on the patient. To give a little bit of background and just talk a little bit about the physiology, um, the, the, the lymphatic system is really a unidirectional system that picks up fluid from the interstitium, usually from the periphery, and then brings it uh, toward the core of the body. Um, and it collects that fluid, brings the fluid to the lymph nodes, but then also uh, to the thoracic duct or other similar lymphatic duct uh, connections between the lymphatic system and the, uh, the bloodstream. So the way the fluid gets generated is, is really a byproduct of the ultrafiltration of the nourishing of the individual cells at the capillary uh, level, uh, meaning that the, the arterial uh, of blood is forced into the capillaries. There is uh, um, uh, the, the exchange of nutrients, oxygen, uh, heavy, uh, happening at the cellular level. Uh, there's a little bit of fluid and protein molecules lost out this kind of the, the, the sides that floats in that, in that no man's land between the cells. And that's really what the lymphatic system picks up. And the lymphatic uh, system is, is a, a, just an ingeniously designed system that has these uh, unicellular, these, these, these collecting ducts. The initial ones are only one cell layer thick and have... Um, these openings between the cells where fluid can get into the lymphatic channels 
and they're stented open by, uh, they're almost suspended by little cables to the, uh, to the cellular um, infrastructure kind of around them. Um, so the fluid can get into those channels and then they go into a larger collecting duct that does no longer have uh, leaky um, uh, openings. So I, I kind of liken this to the, um, to the French drains that's around most uh, basements or most foundations of houses that are then hooked into the, uh, into the sewer system. And so those later, the, the larger channels actually remove that fluid by actively pumping. Um, and they contract somewhere between 0.7 to 1 times per minute for any given section. And that's section between little valves. So the valves allow flow only unidirectionally from these little collecting channels, these thin, thin, thin collecting channels, toward the lymph nodes. So it, in effect, almost creates like a, a vacuum that pulls that fluid into the lymphatic channels and then delivers that fluid to the lymph nodes. Now, if there's an injury to that, that pathway, to those, uh, to those pipes that deliver the uh, fluid to the lymph nodes or to the lymph nodes themselves, then all of a sudden there's an obstruction. The pumping mechanism will continue until it hits that dead end. And so what, the, what happens then is, is that the dilation of the, the, the lymphatic channels beyond that point um, and uh, no place to kind of to drain that fluid into. Importantly also is, is that uh, in that system, the lymph, lymph nodes themselves actually drain most of that fluid back into the bloodstream. Um, so about 70 to 80% of the fluid already gets, gets placed back into the bloodstream at the level of the lymph nodes. The remainder kind of passes through after the, the immune system has kind of filtered that and examined that fluid, gets passed through the lymph nodes and ends up in uh, usually thoracic or lymphatic duct, a direct connection between the lymphatic system and the, uh, the bloodstream. One thing that's also important to notice is that, that the lymphatic channels, these tiny little channels with their intrinsic muscular pump mechanism, can generate pressures of about 100 millimeters of mercury, and that'll become important as we talk about some of the surgical treatments, uh, because it does overcome generally the venous pressure. Um, and that's also why the, the fluid can get dumped back into the bloodstream at the, at the level of the thoracic duct, for example. Um, this is a chronic debilitating condition that affects a great number of people worldwide. Um, generally, internationally, the, the primary cause for lymphedema is, uh, is an infection, is filariasis. Um, something that we don't see in the, the, the Western world or in the developed world, and so that's um, apropos our discussion earlier, we see most of our lymphedema um, is um, uh, due to an, an, an intervention on the lymphatic system, usually due to cancer. We do still, as, as mentioned in the introduction, see primary lymphedema, meaning lymphedema that's present at birth or the abnormality in the lymphatic system is present at birth that will then um, uh, be manifest later in life. So and there are really three stages of primary lymphedema, that that is already present uh, with when, the, when the patient is born or shortly after birth, one that happens during kind of teenage years, and then there's another spike kind of in the early 20s to 30s. And that may be associated with a very minor injury, but not usually enough to cause lymphedema, but it, it just kind of unmasks the underlying um, uh, problem with the lymphatic system. And within uh, a primary lymphedema, I should still say that the, um, the 
the, the underlying cause may be multiple. So it may be that there are an insufficient number of lymph nodes that, uh, that service an, a given area of the body. It may be that there aren't enough lymphatic channels connecting that area to the lymph nodes. And it may also be a problem with the valves. And so if there are no valves, then the, the, the propulsion of the lymphatic fluid is impossible. It's, it's impossible to move that fluid, for example, up a leg uh, against gravity into the lymph node basin. Secondary lymphedema uh, is due to an injury to the lymphatic system of some sort. Most commonly, as I mentioned, in the, uh, um, in the Western world is uh, due to cancer treatment. It could be due to trauma as well, and we do see patients that have had traumatic injuries to a kind of specific area of the body, usually near a lymphatic basin, um, and that may cause a, an injury of a, of, a, of, a, of a specific lymphatic channel or two or three lymphatic channels that drain a, um, a given area, which will then result in swelling. Um, chemotherapy and radiation therapy certainly will also play a role in the development of lymphedema, for, especially for the cancer patients, um, and infection may also. Worldwide, it is certainly uh, infectious causes that, that are the most common uh, cause for secondary lymphedema. Um, this is a, a great, so this is a lymphocytogram, which is something that we don't order quite nearly as much as we used to, um, but this is a lengthy study, can be a lengthy study, depending on the speed of movement of the lymphatic uh, fluid within that. So this is a radiocolloid dye that's injected in the multiple um, images taken over time, and that can be a time within 30 minutes, it can take six hours. But what you see there is an injection in the bilateral lower extremities, and you see the dark, dark, dark black spots at the bottom of the screen, and then that faint channel that moves up the left leg in this case and brings it to, those, uh, to the nodal basins up in the uh, groin and then in the retroperitoneum um, uh, and pelvis. On the right-hand side, you see that the leg uh, kind of uh, left hand of the screen, patient's right-hand side, you see that the, um, the leg actually looks like there's a gray stalking. And that's what we call dermal reflux. That's fluid that cannot get up the leg efficiently, and so it refluxes into the skin and sits essentially in the extremity. Um, and you can see up top that there's very little uh, uptake in the actual lymph nodes up above. And this is a late, late, late picture. This would have been a three or six hour picture. Secondary lymphedema, as we mentioned, is usually cancer-related. And here is just kind of a very, very rough overview of kind of where we find uh, lymph nodes and kind of the connections of the lymph nodes to the thoracic duct, but also the connections to the lymphatic basins. And so anywhere where you have a, a, an area that, uh, that drains into a given lymphatic basin, and often with cancer, what we find is, is that that lymphatic basin may be shared by other areas. So, for example, in the breast or uh, gynecologic or urologic cancers, um, the, 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 the axilla or the groin tends to be the nodal basin that those areas may drain to, but the extremity, lower extremity, upper extremity, is kind of almost like the, um, the, 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 the the, the, the area that is, uh, that is affected by the removal of those lymph nodes, even though there was no cancer in that area itself. And that will become important as we talk a little bit about some of the surgical interventions. Um, for example, the prophylactic bypasses that we offer uh, in the sense that it, uh, we are very, very cautious about making connections of the lymphatic system and avoiding the area where the cancer came from. But these are kind of prime examples where the the, the, um, the, the, the limb is affected that wasn't really affected by the primary cancer, but they share that same nodal basin. 
This map is also a good one to kind of think about or keep in our heads in terms of potential donor sites for lymph nodes uh, because any of those lymph nodes could potentially be transplanted to a different area and that'll become one of the treatments that we'll delve into a little bit later. Importantly, there's a fairly significant number of patients will suffer from lymphedema if they have advanced disease, meaning disease that involves the lymph nodes, because that usually implies that the patient will require removal of that lymph node basin, that a sentinel lymph node, for example, is no longer adequate. Um, and now we're becoming more and more aggressive about sparing lymph nodes because of uh, the, the side effects of lymphedema and quality of life with, um, with targeted uh, lymphatic removal that is a little bit more than sentinel nodes, but not quite an, an, an axillary removal, for example. But it's really for those patients that still require a full nodal dissection, so an axillary lymph node dissection, where these numbers are pretty significant, and they may have uh, lymphedema rates of up to 40% in that upper extremity on that side. And again, that implies also that the patient will receive chemo and radiation therapy. For melanoma, especially of the lower extremity, for example, the rates are as high as 70% if, an, if a groin node dissection is necessary as well. So in the United States, um, certainly the highest number of lymphedema patients that we see is, is due to breast cancer, and that is associated with the fact that that tends to be one of the highest uh, incidents of cancers that we see, um, and uh, it, it happens to be anatomically an area where the arm shares that lymph node basin uh, with the breast meat being in the axilla. Um, and so the entire removal of those lymph nodes ne being necessary uh, when uh, multiple nodes are involved. Um, so the rates of axillary lymph node dissection uh, are up to 40% uh, for the breast cancer patient, where it's actually much lower for the sentinel node. And even though numbers that are as high as 10% have been reported, I think most studies would quote that number as 4% or less for a, for a sentinel, node, a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Um, but that still means that there is a significant number of patients that will develop lymphedema or at a high risk of developing lymphedema. Um, especially because the, the rates of this, the, the cancer is so high. Um, so what do patients present with? Um, it may be a relatively subtle swelling, uh, like that lower extremity, or maybe a much more advanced swelling, like the upper extremity that you see in that picture. Um, and patients come in with all kinds of stages. Um, the cost of lymphedema, as I mentioned earlier, can be very significant, and that means also the cost to the individual patient, not just to the healthcare system. There was a great study that was done by a group at MD Anderson not too long ago where they looked at the cost to the individual patient and to the, the, the system. And what they found is that the cost to the system tends to be about $10,000 more than the actual cancer care if a person develops lymphedema, and that's a lifelong cost. And that may be shared by the insurer. Many times, much of that cost is borne by the patient. Um, now, there's been a development, there's a, the National Lymphedema uh, Act uh, has just been passed and should take effect in January of next year, and so there will be probably a little bit more coverage for some of the garments that, the compression garments that we'll talk a little bit about, um, but there is still a significant cost associated with this disease. Um, and as we mentioned already, there's a significant functional impairment for many of the patients. Infection can be a, 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 a recurrent di uh, problem for the patient, and that tends to be something that self-perpetuates. It tends to damage the lymphatic system more with each infection, and so that can actually worsen the disease. And then, as we already mentioned, that there is a significant psychosocial impact for the patient as well, and that means um, the, the, the ongoing therapy that's required, but also that constant reminder of their journey.
Um, we've heard from patients that it is, uh, that the lymphedema is worse than having the, the, the cancer and probably because many times now we have such incredibly uh, high cure rates for, especially for breast cancer, um, but lymphedema is something that's ongoing and that's perpetual. It's something that the patient cannot forget about uh, during parts of the day or part of a week. Uh, it's something that's really ongoing. So how do we stage lymphedema? How do we communicate? Uh, and, and, and what are kind of the, the, the evolution of the, of the disease of lymphedema? The International Society of Lymphology staging is probably the most widely used uh, staging. And it comes, uh, it, it goes from zero through three Zero being really a subclinical disease, and that's a disease where the patient may say, I've noticed there's a little bit of tightness in my extremity or in affected part once in a while, um, but I don't really notice any swelling, I don't really have any indication that there's something wrong, a little bit of tightness, maybe some heaviness in that extremity. Um, stage one, then, is, is where the patient actually notices some pitting, and that may be on the lower extremity when they remove their socks at the end of the day, that one sock has kind of a, a more significant indent uh, or the edge of the sock than the other side. Um, similarly, with the uh, upper extremity of tighter sleeve or some jewelry may leave a mark that will go away within 30 seconds or so, but the patient may notice. And so that's stage one, but they may notice that only occasionally, stage one being disease that with elevation, it, it just it, it subsides, it's gone again. Um, whereas then we move into stage two disease and that's where the swelling really stays. It improves with elevation, but never goes away, never kind of mimics the other side. Um, and the patient will certainly notice the pitting more significantly in there. Stage three tends to be much more kind of a, a, a end stage disease where there is not only swelling due to the, the fluid component, but we also see that there is significant hypertrophy of the fat in that limb and nobody really knows why that interplay, if it's the constant kind of chronic inflammatory condition, but for some reason the fat in the extremity that's affected by lymphedema hypertrophies. And so there's excess volume because of the fat hypertrophy in addition to the fluctuating volume that's due to the, the, the fluid component. In some of that later stage disease, we also find that there's much more fibrosis, that there's, it's a much firmer disease, even if the, the fluid components as well, a component is well controlled, um, that the, uh, the, the firmness of the tissues increases. There may be pigmentary changes to the skin. There are generally these kind of deeper folds in the skin. There's kind of that overhanging uh, kind of columnar shape of the, of the limb, and that can happen in the upper extremity as well at the level of the wrist. Um, and then we may even see skin changes such as little warty overgrowths, and that's really what we call lymphangiectasis, um, where there's dilation of the, the, the interdermal lymphatic channels that stretch out the, 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 the dermis, and those are all kind of later signs of um, uh, lymphedema. More commonly seen earlier in, in, in tissues that are softer, that are easily stretched, so genitalia, we may see that even a little bit earlier in the disease. Uh, but in the extremity tends to be a late stage, and that's termed elephantiasis, and for obvious reasons when it looks that, that, that really thick limb with a plaque, uh, plaque-type changes of the dermis as well. <clears throat> now we have some great tools available to us to, to stage this uh, differently as well, and ICG is one of them, and ICG stands for Indocyne in Green, and it's a dye that's been used widely by ophthalmology, by our liver colleagues for years and years, we found that the ICG also binds to protein molecules in the interstitium when we inject it intradermally. Um, and what happens there is, is the lymphatic channels take up that dye 
and propel, propel it along in that lymphatic channel. You can see that, uh, that finger melt, milking that channel there on the screen. Um, what we also find in, in patients that have lymphedema where there's an abnormality in the lymphatic system, meaning a, a, a blockage in those channels that you can see as being like massaged along there, um, what happens if there's blockage, the, 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 the fluid tries to find the path of least resistance, and that in this case, with that blotch that appears on the skin there, is what we call dermal reflux. So rather than going in that collecting channel, moving up the limb, the, uh, the force of the finger there, it massages the fluid, it actually forces that, um, um, the, the fluid into the skin, into the subdermal plexus that usually connects that, collects that fluid, uh, and, uh, and that's an indication of dysfunction with the lymphatic system. And here you can see how we have, uh, that's been categorized into kind of different, uh, different images have been categorized at different degrees of uh, damage to the lymphatic system. On the left of your screen there, you can see uh, the, that linear pattern, which is the normal lymphatic channel, um, where the fluid uh, moves along freely, and you can even observe that with the contraction of those lymphatics um, with these cameras that we have. You might then see in earlier lymphedema that there's a, what we call a splash pattern, and that's just kind of a slightly hazy appearance. You'll still see lots of linear channels. The next step then is more what we call stardust, where there's more... Uh, dye essentially refluxing into the skin and you can see these little splotches of, uh, of dye appearing as they reflux into the skin rather than moving up the lymphatic channels and then the very late pattern is called the diffuse pattern where the entire leg turns whitish and that's very similar to that stalking picture that I showed at the beginning um, from the uh, lymphocyntogram. And that, what we found is, is that if you uh, uh, inject a person early, so a person may come in and say, I have some heaviness or some tightness in my limb, but you measure the limb and there really isn't much of a volume difference. We could do the ICG injection at that stage, and if a patient has a splash pattern or a linear pattern, they may well recover. They may well, their lymphatic system may be intact. They may never progress. If we find that they're in that stardust or diffuse group already, even before we can see that there is a, a, a change in the, in, the, in the limb volume, we know that they will progress to that. So that uh, gives us an opportunity to intervene relatively early. While we still have lots of functioning lymphatics that still want to pump the fluid, um, and so that is a very, very helpful tool for us to kind of uh, to diagnose patients early, but also to stage them at an earlier stage. Um, so how do we treat lymphedema? Um, certainly the, the, the primary treatment of lymphedema was and remains um, uh, a treatment with a certified lymphedema therapist. And so this is a, generally speaking, either a, um, a, a physical therapist or sometimes occupational therapist. For the head and neck, it may also be someone from, uh, coming out from a speech pathology background that has had additional training in the care of lymphedema patients. And so that, that uh, a group of, of therapists will usually take that patient through a, what we call a full complex decongestive therapy cycle. And that certainly is the first line of, uh, of, of therapy. What does that mean? Um, so the, the initial therapy for uh, decongestive uh, therapy is, is a very active. It may be a, a therapy that's delivered on a daily basis or twice weekly basis by a certified lymphedema therapist. 
And so that in, includes usually a very, uh, we hate to use the term massage, but it is a kind of a very form of very light massage. It's called lim uh, manual lymphatic drainage, where there's actually um, movement of lymph fluid out of that limb, uh, very deliberate and very, very kind of very strictly outlined movement of the fluid out of that limb, um, combined with uh, immediate compression therapy, and that usually means bandaging in those early phases to keep the fluid out and to try to kind of find the level of external compression that's required to keep that limb at a smaller uh, volume. So if we go back to the physiology or pathophysiology, there will still be some lymphatic channels intact in that limb that's affected by lymphedema, generally speaking. And so what we're doing is, is we're by, by uh, moving fluid out manually and then through compression, we're, we're forcing more fluid through those remaining existing channels and it's really up to us to kind of figure out how much compression is necessary to maintain that limb at a normal or near normal level. Beyond that, our therapists will work with the patients and talk. There's a lot of education that goes into this and that includes patients, uh, the skin care, um, as well as potentially wound care if necessary, but also exercise and movement um, education, which is incredibly important with lymphedema because it promotes uh, lymphatic drainage and also promotes a healthier lifestyle, um, um, as well as um, uh, maintaining weight, which is an important component in the development of lymphedema. So a higher BMI will have a negative effect on lymphedema as well. The patient then graduates into kind of the second level and that this first part, this phase one, usually uh, um, takes about six weeks or so um, to complete. And then the patient may, uh, goes into more of a self-care cycle uh, where they learn to do the, the bandaging themselves or are graduated into some kind of a compression garment that may be off the shelf or maybe a, a custom-made garment. That's something that the patient will have to uh, kind of re-up re or renew anywhere between three and six monthly just because it loses that flex it loses the compression level. And then the patient themselves will, 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 will kind of maintain a lot of the gains that have been made with the therapist. And then there's a, 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 a continuous check-in at, at time uh, intervals and maybe a, 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 a redo, I guess, of phase one as necessary. But hopefully the patient will, will stay in that maintenance phase. And that's really the kind of the primary level of, of lymphatic care, or the, the first step in, in, in lymphedema treatment. Now, where, where does surgery fit in? And really, we, we ask every patient, uh, and, and generally the patients that come to see us will have gone through that cycle, and many of the patients to us are referred through our lymphedema therapists, but we really ask the patient to go through a full uh, a cycle of that CDT and, and also have some, um, uh, have had some time to manage this on their own already. So that's six weeks plus an additional six weeks as a minimum before we would consider a surgical intervention. And many patients do very, very well with that initial uh, self-care and do not require kind of the escalation to surgery. But those patients that either progress or really are not maintained at a normal or near normal level uh, would then be candidates to consider for surgical intervention. Um, and we'll talk now about a little bit of that. And so what the surgical treatments are, we really we divide them into physiologic and non-physiologic or ablative procedures. And on the physiologic side, meaning that we actually re-establish some, some type of a physiologic or extra-physiologic outflow mechanism for that lymphatic fluid again. And that may be what we call a lymph lymphovenous bypass, meaning making a new surgical connection between the lymphatic system 
and the actual bloodstream, the venous bloodstream, essentially creating a, um, a lymphatic duct in, uh, in the affected uh, extremity. Uh, versus the other option is, is actually transplanting lymph nodes back into the affected extremity. And so that, the idea there is, is that we bring lymph nodes together with their blood supply into the uh, affected extremity. The lymph nodes are, um, uh, are great excretors of, of, um, uh, of growth factors, for example, VEGF3, uh, that's implicated in kind of growth of lymphatic channels toward a, um, a lymph node again. And so the, the existing lymphatic channels will actually reconnect um, to those uh, lymphatic channels around the lymph node. And, and that will create a new uh, lymph node basin, in effect, for that extremity. Versus the non-physiological or ablative procedures uh, are generally uh, Charles procedures or direct excisions of tissue that is affected by lymphedema or liposuction, where there's a removal of fat. And as we talked already a little bit about, the, the, the fact that lymphedema is a, is a disease of volume excess, primarily of fluid that fluctuates, but then also in the later stages of fat. And if we can control the fluid component very well, and that may be accomplished by the physiologic procedures, we may not have addressed the fatty component yet, the fat hypertrophy. And so that is where the liposuction comes in, and that is very, very effective, and we'll talk more about that. So what do we do for the preclinical stages? So the very, very early patients that may come into, the, uh, into clinic um, just complaining of some heaviness, we can't actually measure a volume difference between extremities yet. But that, that heaviness should be a little bit of an alarm bell. And so those are the patients that we send definitely to our therapists. We also would consider them for that ICG test. As I mentioned, that we can often see earlier st stages of lymphatic damage um, on the ICG than we would be able to tell on physical exam. Um, but those are the patients that would definitely benefit from an, an intervention with our therapists um, as a, a kind of careful surveillance of their volume measurements will be extremely important as well. And, um, other measurements, such as uh, um, bioimpedance, for example, may be an indicator that there is progression of the disease even before physical signs or volume differences occur. So very important to get that patient seen early on and have them assessed and staged appropriately. Um, and then if there is an, an advancement, or if we see that there is an abnormality on the ICG, for example, we would offer them an early physiologic intervention to try to prevent that from worsening. <clears throat> What about uh, lymphedema stage 1 patients? So patients that actually have swelling already, that swelling may, may get better with elevation, so the patient may not notice much swelling in the mornings, but by the end of the day, that limb will have significant swelling and will have significant indentations. So those patients absolutely are, are, are already immediate surgical candidates, potentially. And so one of the, uh, the earliest intervention that we usually offer for those patients, because that implies that they still have very good functioning lymphatic channels, so lymphatic channels that want to pump the fluid out of the leg or the arm, but don't have a, an area to put it into. So the lymphovenous bypass is a great operation for that patient population. And if you imagine, again, as we talked about, this is a pipe that is blocked upstream, so the, the fluid has nowhere to go. However, we do have adjacent an adjacent highway, so to speak, that can take on the, that has capacity to take on the, uh, the additional volume. The, the, the volume, uh, the, the, the fluid uh, volumes that are, that are carried by the venous system much, much, much outweigh the lymphatic system. So there's definitely room for the additional lymphatic fluid. It wouldn't overwhelm the venous system. And so what we do surgically, 
we literally will create a connection between the venous system and the lymphatic system, allowing that higher pressure lymph uh, fluid to be able to pump into the venous system. And what does that look like in, in practice? This is something that was developed in the early 60s, actually, in, in the, in the um, animal model, um, but has kind of been revived uh, in, the, in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, and that's kind of when we started doing that as well, and our, certainly our Japanese colleagues were, were the, the first to kind of offer this with the ability to do uh, a connection between smaller and smaller vessels because of better surgical microinstrumentation and then also uh, microscopes, we were able to actually target these immediate subdermal lymphatics to immediate subdermal venules. And so generally speaking, these are little connections that are made at a, at a certainly sub-millimeter, even sub-0.8 millimeter scale. So what we do is we perform these roadmaps with the ICG uh, on the patient's limb at the time of the surgery, outlining where those lymphatics are, and when we can also use ultrasound and or vein finders to outline some of the, the, the venous anatomy next to it. And so then we can make these tiny, tiny little incisions because we know where those channels are and where the problem channels are, and they're usually on the order of two to three centimeters at most, and then we create those little connections. And here are some of those connections, and these are under the operating microscope, that little green background. I don't know if you can see those little squares very well, but the squares on there are millimeter in, uh, in width and height. Um, but you can see there the connection between a lymphatic and a venule. And then on the right-hand side of the screen, you can see the, the flow of uh, ICG across that, uh, that repair under the special uh, near-infrared camera. And that's an end-to-end -end anastomosis, meaning the vessels were just connected uh, um, uh, with the, each end. Here's a different kind of a connection. You can see there the, the lymphatic fluid, that clear fluid flushing into the vein, and there's still some blood that flushes back and forth, but overall the, the flow will be from the lymphatic channel into the venous, uh, venous um, circulation. The, the, the valves and the veins certainly help us here as well, and that fluid will go in, uh, generally unidirectionally. And there are multiple connections here. There's an end-to-end -end connection and then an end-to-side connection that was created here with two lymphatic channels into the same venous system. And then so what we see is, is some of the outcomes. Um, and the, the volume outcomes, why we want to see a, a great result, are not nearly as, um, as universal as the patient's uh, reported outcomes. And so that becomes very, very important to kind of differentiate the two and understand what they mean. And, but you can see there's a measurable difference in the lower leg there above the ankle and that mid uh, leg level. Here's somebody with a, with a stage two disease that had some improvement here, but also significantly had improvement in the thigh um, after this operation. Um, and so we've looked stage three, kind of a, a, a more severe, um, certainly improvement in the lower extremity, a little bit less in the upper, and there's probably more of a fatty component in these later stage diseases in, that upper, uh, in the upper part of the lower extremity. We looked at our first kind of 100 consecutive uh, bypasses that we performed, and we found that the patients reported a very, very high um, improvement rate and symptomatic improvement rate, but that the quantitative, the kind of the volume measurements that we had performed weren't quite as good. It's still a 74% uh, improvement, uh, but not quite as high. I think some of that also speaks to the fact that, you know, if the patient has a salty drink the night before or an alcoholic drink or... Um, maybe spends two hours driving into clinic for that measurement, 
that the um, the volumes will be will be different than what their perceived improvement is is in their everyday lives, uh, and they're certainly I think the best judges of that quality of life. We also found with this is that early stage disease did much much better that the improvement was better, which makes sense given the 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 um, preservation of the in intrinsic pumping function of that lymphatic channel. Um, the other thing that we're very excited about that we're offering is, is, is a prophylactic lymphovenous bypasses. And I think this is really the, the ideal way to address this problem early on and, and, and avoid the, the, um, uh, the need for uh, any future intervention. Really what this means is, is that we perform these types of bypass procedures at the time of the lymphatic, uh, uh, the nodal removal. And that's only in those patients that are high risk. So for the upper extremity, somebody who will require a full axillary lymph node dissection. Um, but we use the same techniques, um, only now we're doing these in the axilla. And here is an example of a thoracodorsal vein with multiple lymphatics kind of draining into that venule. More often than not, do we find uh, somewhere between 4 and even up to 15 lymphatic channels that have been cut at the time of the axillary nodal dissection, and we can reconnect those to little blood vessels. Again, blood vessels that have usually been sacrificed in the axilla anyway during the nodal dissection. And so we will hook up as many, and as I said, we've done up to 15 or so of connections in a single patient's axilla to provide that, that ongoing outflow to, to never have a, a period of, of obstruction or blockage. Um, and we found that that's been extremely effective um, for preventing lymphedema. This is not something that we invented. Certainly, this is something that our uh, kind of some colleagues in, in, in Italy had been doing for years with some great results. And they had an initial 74 patients where they looked specifically at breast-related lymphedema. And they had a very, very high rate of, of, um, of essentially avoidance of lymphedema. So that 40% rate of uh, developing lymphedema went down to about 4% in actually lymph node dissection patients, so a tenfold reduction in risk um, for those patients. And that's similar to what we're seeing here uh, as well, and colleagues around the, the, the United States are seeing. Um, what about the kind of slightly more advanced uh, patients, those stage 2 patients that have either pitting edema um, or non-pitting, non-pitting kind of going more almost into a stage 3 disease, potentially one with more fibrosis. Um, but for those patients with pitting edema, uh, we certainly engage the same procedure so that lymphovenous bypass is still an option, especially if on imaging we find that there are great targets that would be options. But with those patients, we also start to think more about uh, vascularized lymph node transplantation. So especially that patient that on ICG exam may have more of that whiteout, maybe has one remaining lymphatic channel that we can see and lots of that dermal reflux, those patients we would uh, we would think more about a vascularized lymph node transplant. And really, lymph nodes we could take from anywhere. Traditionally, the, patient, the, the lymph nodes uh, that have been used, or lymph node basins that have been used for donor sites, have been the groin initially, um, and then uh, I would say the axilla as well, and then the submental area. Um, more recently, the supraclavicular lymph nodes have been used, and then we kind of championed the intra-abdominal uh, lymph nodes um, uh, for transplantation. And the reason really we've gone into the abdomen is, is because we were worried that, uh, it would, uh, that removal of lymph nodes from the groin or axilla specifically would potentially um, cause lymphedema, and that certainly has been borne out in case studies, in uh, thankfully very rare case studies in the literature, um, but uh, so more and more people, I think, are now looking at, uh, at the abdomen as a potential donor site and the supraclavicular or head and neck region just because there's more redundancy in the system.
Um, so what, one of the kind of go-tos for our unit is, is the jejunal uh, lymph nodes or me uh, 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 it's really the mesenteric lymph nodes that we use or our mental lymph nodes. The advantage here is, is that we can get multiple lymph node packets if necessary for um, uh, uh, bipowered uh, transplants both distally and proximally. We'll talk a little bit more about that. It tends to be a very small packet that's very dense. It has three to five lymph nodes in it, but it's, it's contained in a very small packet of about four by three centimeters or so, which allows placement of those lymph nodes in various areas uh, without uh, too much, kind of, without, being too, without being too obvious. Um, and also avoidance of iatrogenic uh, lymphedema. Many, many, hundreds of thousands of millions of bowel resections have been done and patients do not develop lymphedema from this type of an intervention. So. Um, and we've certainly not seen with harvesting these lymph nodes that there's been any kind of um, uh, difficulty with lymphedema at the donor site. So that's one of the major reasons that why, why, why we've gone into the abdomen and love that donor site. The disadvantage, of course, is, is that you do not get a, a skin island with that flap, whereas with, with other transplants you may also get a, a skin island, um, but more importantly that it, it does require a, a laparotomy to uh, remove those lymph nodes. Um, Preoperative considerations for those patients um, is, is that we are worried if anybody has had multiple prior procedures and or radiation to the abdomen. So those are relative and then absolute contraindications for multiple hernia repairs. If we know somebody has very significant uh, uh, bowel adhesions from prior surgeries, there may be multiple lysis of adhesions already, those tends to, tend to be patients that we look for alternate uh, options for uh, lymph node transplants. Um, here's just a, a very short video sequence of kind of showing um, what we do. So this is generally done through a mini laparotomy, something between a five and seven centimeter incision in the supraumbilical area. This was something that we can certainly do on someone that's had prior surgical intervention. And this is a patient that had a prior abdominoplasty even. This does not preclude the use of these lymph nodes. We perform that uh, mini laparotomy, and through that laparotomy, are able to deliver the small bowel with its mesentery out of the abdomen, um, and then um, uh, examine that. And what we see next is, is that really, when we transilluminate, we can see those uh, lymphatic channels. Uh, sorry, the lymph nodes. We can also see the lymphatic channels generally, but more importantly, we can also see the associated blood supply with those lymphatic channels as we uh, want to transplant those into, uh, uh, into a, a, the, the new site, into the area that's affected. And where do we place those lymph nodes? Um, we may either place them proximally, meaning in the area of the lymph node dissection, where, that, where the scar is already from the prior nodal removal, or we can place them distally. The advantage of placing them proximally is, is that, that that new tissue probably may uh, beyond making new connections to the lymphatic system and, and absorbing that fluid may also create a bridge uh, with the surrounding tissues on either side of that blockage and in addition to giving uh, kind of that scar release may not only absorb the fluid but may also bridge uh, lymphatic channels above and below and, and have an additional positive effect. We utilize this primarily for patients who have a very scarred um, area that has other issues, so kind of a range of motion uh, uh, deficit uh, uh, with, that, uh, with that scar tissue as well as the lymphedema. Just because the, the, the proximal placement doesn't tend to be uh, quite as effective at removing that fluid that tends to be more distally. So more commonly will we place the lymph nodes distally because the site where the lymph nodes are placed is the area that, that reduces in volume first 
and is probably the most effective area in, in terms of volume reduction in the longer term. Um, so that's uh, most of the time we will place it um, uh, into, the proc into the distal area of the affected limb uh, and plus or minus into the proximal area secondarily depending on what else is going on with that scar. And here is just an, an, an example of a, a small nodal packet that's been hooked up to the uh, radial vessels in this case in an end to side fashion um, to for an upper extremity. Um, here is the, uh, uh, the, the flap inset uh, of a lower extremity together with a small little skin graft over top of that and that's really placed for monitoring purposes post-operatively that's surgically removed later on if the patient doesn't like the, uh, the look of that skin graft. Some of the results, what we found is, is that the, 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 the volume difference, the volume improvement is even better than with the lymphovenous bypass for these patients, but it's a much more invasive procedure. Um, and so beyond that, again, um, what we find is, is that patients usually describe that the extremity is much softer, and often they can downgrade their level of compression from a heavier gauge compression garment to a much lighter gauge or only uh, use that, uh, that, that compression garment intermittently with high-risk activities. Um, Post-operative considerations for these types of patients, um, we do admit those. This is a free flap, so we do want to, want to monitor them for that initial at least 48-hour period where there is a risk of uh, vascular thrombosis, and that would mean that the flap would not work. Um, so we want to be able to intervene, and that really is a 48-hour window. And then as we advance the diet again, we don't usually disrupt the bowel itself, but the patients, because of the, the handling of the bowel, usually have some type of a, a slow gut recovery, and it usually takes about a day of two or two of more clear fluids before they recover a full, uh, back to a full diet. Um, then we also are very cautious with the areas where we place those lymph nodes uh, in an effort to try to avoid direct compression or damage to the lymph nodes in that healing period. By six weeks, patients are generally back to doing most everything they were doing beforehand. For the lower extremity, we, we, that, that there's a little bit of a slower course because of the venous hypertension, relative venous hypertension that occurs with dangling of the limb. And so we're a little bit slower with allowing patients to get up and about, and, and especially for prolonged periods um, uh, in that scenario. Whereas the upper extremity, we're much more forgiving. We also will perform uh, omental transfers. Omentum is a, very, is, a, is a tissue that doesn't have that many lymph nodes, but it's very rich in lymphoid tissue and lymph lakes, and so it can act very similarly to lymph nodes as well. That one, uh, that uh, similar type of a harvest, that type of tissue, of tissue we, re, uh, we reserve more for the larger areas where we have uh, created a, a large area of, of, of scar release, for example, where we're trying to uh, replace that scar with uh, fatty tissue to avoid rescarring of that issue and also uh, relieve um, lymphedema. And often what we'll do is, is we'll do that as a double level kind of a procedure where the distal extremity gets the smaller lymph node packet, the proximal, the, 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 the omental transplant in the same limb. Um, um, in the interest of time, I'll kind of uh, skip a little bit uh, over that last slide. What we'll talk about is a little bit the ablative procedures or ancillary procedures that can be very, very useful for patients. As I mentioned, that fat hypertrophy is also a side effect of lymphedema, and that fat does not respond to the previously mentioned surgical interventions. However, it is very responsive to liposuction. And here is a patient with lymphedema that had where the, 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 the fluid component was well controlled but had uh, excess volume due to the fatty hypertrophy. 
and that can be very well controlled with the um, with the liposuction or removed with liposuction. It does not it does not come back. The champion really for this was Hakan Brorsen from Sweden, who has done this for almost 20 years now, and his uh, long-term results actually show that that fat does not regenerate. That the the volume of the patient maintains their their body mass index is uh, is gone and is gone forever. So that the the volume reduction is sustained. Uh, in terms of the fat removal. It does mean that the patients still require garments for compression for the fluid component potentially, um, and, it, and it is a, a surgery that leaves multiple small nicks, small uh, incisions. Um, and again, as I mentioned, new compression garments are always necessary, and that's, that's really every three to six months at a minimum. What about the very advanced patients? Where, uh, we, we would still consider all of the previously mentioned uh, procedures, but in addition to Occasionally, we do still consider a Charles or a modified Charles procedure, and what that means really is this removal of all of the affected lymphedematous limb that is otherwise not responsive to the prior surgical interventions and or uh, the, the compression therapy. And that really means removal of the, 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 the tissues down to the deep fascia, down to the muscle layer, um, and then replacement of that tissue with, um, uh, with a skin graft. And while that's not uh, um, aesthetically necessarily very attractive for the patients, this is, is often a, a life-changing procedure, that patients that have been bedridden or are not able to kind of carry this volume around, are not able to control or, or minimize that volume in, another, in any other way, are now able to um, kind of reintegrate into society, be able to leave the house, be able to put on normal clothing again, um, um, and it, 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 can be, uh, it can be a life-changing procedure still, even though it is a relatively, um, relatively destructive in, in, in many ways, um, as you can see on the slide there. So in conclusion, really, lymphedema treatment needs to be very personalized. It needs to be uh, tailored to the, the individual patient, but also to the patient's um, uh, stage uh, and, and, and kind of the underlying cause for the patient's disease. Um, it's critical to recognize lymphedema early, as early intervention certainly can make a much more dramatic impact on the, on the functionality and ongoing functionality of the lymphatic system, and therefore then maximize the patient's outcome and minimize disability and, uh, and optimize quality of life for those patients. Well, lymph, uh, Roman, that was a fantastic uh, overview. Let me uh, just ask you about lymphedema therapist. Yeah. You mentioned that surgery should be considered when the patient and the lymphedema therapist are not satisfied with the uh, results of complex decongestive therapy. For the primary care provider, who do we turn to for lymphedema therapy? Um, so I, yeah, I can I can't uh, that needs to be underscored. I think it's incredibly important. The kind of the first uh, stage I think of ther lymphedema therapy has to lie with a with a certified lymphedema therapist. Um, you know, make a make a connection. Uh, look in your local area if you're having difficulty finding somebody. Um, learn the Learn Network Lymphedema Education and Research Network has a wonderful website that actually. Um, gives a map and contact information for lymphedema certified uh, therapists around the country, and they are usually connected to these surgical uh, to surgeons that that will uh, pr provide surgical intervention as well. Um, and so, yeah, very very important that the earliest sign, because of as we've shown here, is as the the early intervention um, makes such a big difference in terms of the course of the disease. Well, again, for our primary care providers, what preventive recommendations do you have? for patients with lymphedema that we could then pass on to right. be sure that those patients are getting the best outcomes. Absolutely. So I think one of, again, kind of coming back to lymphedema therapists, 
beyond the compression or the manual lymphatic drainage, a lot of education happens for that patient about the, the course of the disease, what to look out for, that the skin care can't be overstated, for example. I mean, patients who love gardening, we have lots of patients that, you know, as simple as wearing uh, appropriate gardening gloves, you know, to avoid that little skin nick that can then lead to infection that can worsen that disease. So there are lots of little tips and tricks um, in addition to the fact that those therapists will actually monitor the volume, the bioimpedance, for example, of a given patient and, and, and monitor potential progression of the disease. So uh, there are lots of educational pieces that come into play through a therapist that's, that's savvy with lymphedema. One final question, what about exercise? Is it safe in patients who have lymphedema? That's a wonderful question. And, and I, I think I would say within moderation, it's absolutely encouraged. What we find that not only does it activate the muscle, the, the intrinsic muscular pump that actually forces fluid out of the lymphatic system, helps actually propel the lymphatic fluid out of the limb, especially if it's combined with a therapist with compression externally, can really, really potentiate the external compression. Um, but also because it's a great way of maintaining a, a healthy body weight. And we really know that the, the increase in BMI has a very detrimental effect on lymphedema. So for all those reasons, appropriate uh, physical exercise, not talking about kind of these very, very kind of very high weight or, or, or ultra marathon runners, that has to be done very carefully with a, with the therapist and or a physician. Um, but, uh, but generally, kind of the, 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 the aerobic gentle exercise is excellent for lymphedema. Well, thanks, Roman. We're going to finish up with a final key point about lymphedema. Roman? Thanks for having me. I think the key point really is this is early recognition. Listen to the patient. Please refer them to uh, somebody that is savvy in the care of lymphedema. And know that there are lots of uh, um, therapies out there now and that that field is expanding um, uh, almost on a, on a monthly basis. Uh, so there's a, a lot of great hope, a lot of great opportunity for patients on the, on the near horizon. Thank you. Well, Roman, thanks again for joining us today. And for all of you viewing, don't forget that you can get American Board of Internal Medicine Maintenance and Certification points for viewing MedNet and then answering the post-test questions following the webcast. This year, the Drug Enforcement Agency is requiring all physicians with a DEA license to complete eight hours of continuing medical education involving the treatment of opioid and substance use disorders. Next week on MedNet, you can get one of those hours when we'll be discussing buprenorphine treatment with Drs. Aaron McKnight and Lucas McKnight. We'll see you then.